Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher. This is the podcast where we talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, we are welcoming back Jeff Goins to the show for a second time. Jeff has just recently come out with his book, The In-Between. And some people are going to maybe wonder, well, what does waiting have to do with productivity? What does boredom have to do with productivity? And I ask Jeff that question. He answers it. Very well, in fact. We touch on passion and calling and procrastination. We also touch a little bit more on some of the questions that could have been asked in the last interview. And so we bridge those into this one. This week, I'm bringing back Jeff Goins to the show. And a lot has happened in between. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's uh, yeah. I was just wondering if it had been about a, a year. Um, I know I was on, you know, towards you know when you were just starting the podcast. That's that's amazing that it's been a year. I yeah, that's that's kind of fun. To, yeah, and to and of. thanks again for coming on so early when you know you didn't know who this guy was. He was doing the show and. Yeah, totally my pleasure. <laughs> so a lot happened since then. I know we met uh, face-to-face at John Acuff's Quitter Conference, or then called Quitter Conference. It's now called Start. And that was, what, September, and you did an awesome job doing that. And then – and you will be – and I guess it's almost September now, and you'll be speaking at his start conference. So people should get tickets for that, and I will definitely be there. Along with speaking at a number of other conferences, it seems like I'm almost looking around every other couple weeks, and it's like, Jeff's speaking here. And there's pictures of you with, like, funny mustaches and hats and things. <laughs> so – yeah, yeah. So it's it's been it's been an, an awesome year. It's been a lot of fun transitioning from you know writing as a hobby to to doing it full time. Which is interesting because I think it was just shortly thereafter or right before that the success of your first book wrecked. Uh, your wife was able to quit her day job and stay at home full time, and that was sometime shortly thereafter you were able to quit yours, and now you legitimately are you know a full time writer that whole writer lifestyle you know what i mean 
Yeah, I mean, we we moved to upstate New York and, you know, bought a cabin (laughs) and we live in the woods. We have a St. Bernard now. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, I I guess that's true. I guess, you know, I am a a full-time writer. Yeah, it's a a dream come true and and we, I sort of have to go, oh yeah, like I'm doing this because when you're in the middle of doing something, you see how far you have to go still. And and so I'm I'm often humbled by that. But yeah, it's been a a great year and we definitely feel uh, blessed to be on this journey. In a sense, you're almost redefining that whole cabin in the woods thing because <laughs> yeah. if people who listen to this would say, oh, you moved to New York, they don't know you're, you're kidding. And, yeah. But uh, you live there down in Nashville with all my favorite people and even moved on to teaching writing online yeah. with tribe writers, which is – I mean how many classes have you had of that now? I think we've had four classes and we have over um, – it's like an ongoing membership thing. People pay a one-time thing to go through the class but then they remain uh, lifetime members of this community and we have over 1,300 people that have gone through that experience. Wow. And the first time for that was what? Late fall or yeah. somewhere in there last year, yeah. 2012. Mm-hmm. So – and again, if people are interested in that, we'll put the link for that in the show notes for this episode. I highly recommend it. I, I went through it. I learned a lot. What is the tagline again? Learning to write for the audience your writing deserves? Close. Close. Uh, uh, helping you find the audience. There it is. Deserves. Yeah. 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 And I mean the idea there is this isn't really just about you. It's about your message. And your message does deserve to be found. It does deserve to – you know, change the people and things that it's supposed to change in the world. And you shouldn't feel weird about that, about trying to to spread that message. And so that's what we help you do. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things we've learned as the internet has become more niche-filled is that even if you don't think what you're doing is is worthwhile, that in other words, in, in terms of other people's eyes, you might be surprised. There are a ton of people out there who may – who, no, let me rephrase that. There are a ton of people out there who are going to be interested in what you will be doing and what you create. It's such as you just have to find them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, somebody, I've been amazed by that myself, just talking about my own struggles and solving my own problems. Uh, but as somebody told me that if there are, you know, something like 7 billion people in the world and we use this phrase, this idea that you are one in a million, which sounds like a really nice way of saying you're this you know, beautiful, unique snowflake. Uh, but if you do the math, and I've never been great at math, but I think it you know, factors out to something like if you are uh, one in a million and there are 7 billion people in the world, then there are 7,000 people in this world that are just like you. And that's a you know, pretty decent-sized audience, a yeah. little tribe of followers that um, will resonate with everything that you could ever say or do. And I have found that um, anybody who has a message or an experience to share with the world, somebody's going to listen. And the cool thing about the web is now it's easier than ever to get connected to those people to find that tribe, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So you're transitioning or have been transitioning and you are now a full-time writer. And I've paid attention to some of the you know more you know what people would call productivity kind of things that you've actually written about in terms of like it, it's now me like there's no day job to go to that's a stable income it's now all on me what have been some kind of your your fears or your your, your what are your issues jeff <laughs> <laughs> my issues eric are the things that i have to rein in but at the same time i think can be good things as long as there's this healthy tension 
not just as a writer, but as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who is providing a full-time income for my family through unsteady means, um, you know, through kind of up and down months, you know, there's no real steady salary anymore. I am constantly afraid of that source of income running out. And so even if, you know, we have enough money to live on, you know, for the rest of the year, I'm still worried, well, what about next year and the year after? Like, when is this going to end? When is this going to stop? And uh, I have to, you know, I have to kind of, uh, you know, as I said, rein that in and couple that with trust and gratitude. But that is always looming, you know, over my head that any day this could end. And, and I talk to lots of successful entrepreneurs and they say that is a healthy thing. That hunger is a, is a healthy thing to keep, you know, keeping you striving and moving forward and not giving up and seeking out new challenges. But I do think that there is this uh, it's important to balance that so that it doesn't turn into an unhealthy fear or a paranoia or some obsession that you know it's it's always you know that you're always looking for uh, a reason to fail or for something to fall apart. So um, you do have to to trust, just like with you know a steady job, you have to trust that you're going to go in every day and not get laid off. And you know sometimes bad things do happen, but if you walk into the office every day with that negative mindset, that's going to affect you. And, and the same thing is true with uh, you know my, my vocation, and so I try to I try to keep that front of mind. You know, never getting too content or saying, "Oh, I'm set. I can just coast now." But at the same time, uh, realizing that you know I don't know what the future is going to hold, and I just have to trust and keep moving forward the best that I can. Yeah. How have you maybe maintained focus on your days then? Because you know you've got you know, certain things you've got to do. I mean, aside from the speaking stuff, you've got, you want to consistently blog and, you know, sit and write every single day. I know I've seen some things where you've said stuff like, I can't remember if it's the one single thing you have to do today or if it's three or what it is. I know maybe it's been modified. What have you done to to maintain focus? That's a good question. And I mean, I, I think the, the God honest, awful truth is I, on any given week compared to, you know, comparing last year to this year. Last year I had a full-time job. I was writing every single day trying to build this dream of mine. I was, you know, really working hard to provide uh, enough income so that my wife could stay home and raise our son. And as you mentioned earlier, that turned into um, enough freedom and flexibility for her to stay home and also for me to quit my job. And that was awesome, uh, but unexpected. I wrote more than than I do now, you know, where, where I had an hour or two every day to just knock it out, to hustle really hard. Um, there are days, many days, where I look, you know, at my calendar, look what I look at what I've done, and I realize, man, I haven't written at all. I, I, I was writing a lot more um, a year ago than I am now, and that realization has been really scary. And and I think the reasons for it. Are I'm not just writing anymore. I'm not just you know doing this hobby on the side. I am building a business. I'm managing an audience. I'm, I'm you know I have a lot of things to maintain, and, and those things take up time. And uh, I did have a, a realization a few months into um, you know doing this full time, where I realized, wow, like just because I have eight hours a day to to spend time writing 
doesn't mean that I, I can that it'll just happen. I actually still have to block out time. Um, I woke up this morning at five o'clock to get some writing done because I knew that I because I had interviews and all these different things going on today that if I didn't block out some time early in the morning before my day actually started, I wouldn't have written. And so uh, it's interesting because I thought that would just it would be easy, and I really had to um, protect that time. Uh, and I do basically have about one goal a day. But, um, but you know, that, that some days are better than others. Something that I try to do uh, every week on my good days, every day, but something that, that just kind of helps me gauge where I'm at is um, I have these three things that I need to do every week. I need to do something, something significant to build my brand, something to build my craft, and something to build my business. Those three things, if I continue to do those three things on a fairly regular basis, and there's, there's grace there. You know, if it's a busy week and I'm, you know, speaking at this retreat all week, then I might not get to do that. Or if I'm, you know, got my head down because I'm finishing up a manuscript for my next book, that, that might be an exception. But on a regular basis, you know, three or four weeks out of every month, I need to be doing this stuff. And just real quick, the reason for that is if I don't, if I stop building my brand, then I stop growing and, and I stop reaching more people and my audience starts to, to stagnate and I limit the amount of impact that I'm able to have. Um, if I stopped building my craft, then my skill stagnates and I cease to d- keep doing better and better work, which I'm not okay with. I want to keep getting better. And I think, you know, your audience to a certain ex- extent expects that too. They want to see you, they want to grow with you. And if I stop building my business, then I stop getting paid. You know, you can be a good writer and and be well known by people and not make a lot of money. And there are a lot of people on the internet that are doing that. And that's okay, I guess, but that's not a luxury that I have now that my family is being supported by this, this thing that I'm doing. That's excellent. I had not even considered those three items. Some people would even consider those three things to be the one and the same. And I'm glad you broke those out because... Again, some people would consider, you know, like, well, my brand is my business and and so is my craft. And it's like that's just all – it's all me. So if I do something – but I'm glad that you were very specific and I'm actually going to adopt some of that myself. So very yeah, good. I, I mean I, I think people would say that and I think that it's actually good to kind of separate those because just because you get an extra 100 Twitter followers this week doesn't mean you can pay your bills by the end of the month. And just because you got a paycheck for something you did two months ago – doesn't mean you are getting better and growing in your skill. And so what that looked like for me today is, you know, to build my brand, I published a guest post on ProBlogger this morning. And to build my craft, I practiced writing something that I'm not going to publish just to to grow. And to build my business, I went and cashed a check. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, did did some other things to, um, you know, provide provide income. I, I like to separate those things. Business is how we pay our bills and craft is how you get better and brand is how you get known. And, and those are very different things sometimes. Excellent. So I have to ask, did the idea for this new book, the in-between happen to come to you while you were maybe singing John Lennon's beautiful boy to your son? <laughs> uh, no, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he has that John Lennon has that great quote about, you know, life, is is what happens while you're waiting for you know something else, um, you know this that's partly true. I mean, the idea for this book came from really the past probably five years of my life. 
but I didn't. I, I was learning this lesson about how life is slowing down and how I just keep rushing from event to event, and I, I started missing things. I, I was getting that. I was understanding that, but I didn't fully grasp it until uh, we had our son, Aiden, and I realized that if I missed a day with him, as, as I sometimes did during his, this first year of his life where you know I was on a trip or um, just gone for you know eight hours during the day or something, writing in a coffee shop or something like that, and I would come back, he had changed. And I had missed something significant. And I realized, you know, all of these daily mundane moments, man, when I miss one of those with my son, I miss a lot. And what if that were true, not just for him, but for everybody and everything in life? And, and what if life really wasn't about living for the next big moment or huge milestone, but most of life was just a series of these small moments that we could use for better or worse, you know, that we could just rush through to get to the next big thing or actually slow down and enjoy them. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond yeah I, i love the book first off this is one of those things and actually i still owe you I owe an Amazon review, so I'm going to do that. But I'm going to title it something along the lines of uh, Words I Wish I Wrote, one of the few books where it's Words I Wish I Wrote because other, other than you know the actual memoir portions <laughs> because those are your experiences and I live my own story. But the fact that you're talking about stuff that's right up my alley in terms of like it's not just about waiting in between the big experiences – or you know, not being addicted to being like a thrill seeker and filling every moment 
or a warning against like saying yes to too many things. So yeah. we're not moving from you know thing to thing in our schedule without time to catch a breath. Or as what has most recently been titled the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Right. You know, that leads to like social media addictions and phantom vibrations in our pocket where our smartphones would be positioned. It's about all those things and much, much more. And I love that you did all that without ever going to the point of referencing a caterpillar getting into a cocoon and then becoming a butterfly. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good one. We'll put that in the second edition. Nice. There's, there's the cover for your next book. <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where people would be like, how does waiting fit into productivity? Yeah, how does waiting fit into productivity? Um, I'm actually going to write about this on my blog later this week because one of the things that I have done over this past year is I've tried to stop multitasking and, and started single tasking. And I have this addiction to always having to be doing something. Uh, and my wife just thinks it's ridiculous because if I'm going somewhere, I'll throw a book in my backpack in case there's a little bit of time where I can you know, read something, I can accomplish something. If I go for a walk around the block, I'll grab my iPhone and pop my headphones in and listen to you know, an audio book. I'm always trying to, to cram as much stuff in as possible. And my wife's always like, you don't need to do that. Or like I'm always finishing something up before I rush to the next thing. I'm, I'm trying to fit too many things in to a small amount of time. And sometimes, in fact, an, enough times it works out that I keep doing it because I think I'm, you know, I think I can accomplish more things than I have time. But uh, more and more these days, that sort of blows up in my face where I try to, I try to squeeze one last thing into my schedule before heading to the next meeting, and I'm late. Or I say yes to to two things and, and double book myself, and can't really be fully present to uh, either thing. So. What does waiting have to do with productivity? Um, I think it helps us realize that some things in life are worth waiting for. Some things in life, in fact, the best things in life and in work, require slow, steady, deliberate practice. And what if being productive wasn't about doing a lot of things but doing a few things well? And that's what I've been trying to do over this past year and really been amazed by how much I actually am able to accomplish doing one thing at a time because instead of like having 18 windows open and like jumping from thing to thing to thing and feeling productive and sometimes ending my day not having finished anything, uh, setting out to accomplish one thing and, and often being able to accomplish you know, more than one thing in a day, but having that single-mindedness has allowed me to focus and do really great work and it's done two things. One, it's diminished my long list of random tasks because I'm consolidating things into do this and follow through and it's one thing. It's done that. It's, it's actually diminished the amount of tasks that I have on my list. The second thing it's allowed me to do is, is it's given me freedom from having to go back and kind of clean up my mess. And, you know, I don't, everybody's different, but when I'm frazzled and doing lots of different things, I make mistakes and then I have to go back and correct those mistakes. And when I'm focusing on a single task, which essentially means that I'm waiting to do all those other things that are important, you know, that feel really urgent. I'm doing this one thing right now. I do it well, and then it's done. And I don't have to go back and revisit it five or six more times because I've done it well. That's a great example. I'm glad that you were able to to really articulate that well because some people are going to read the title for this show and be like, you know, waiting. 
Yep. Patience? That, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm trying to get more stuff done. Right. And that's the point is like we get so much stuff done crappy mm-hmm. because we're doing all this stuff. And yep. instead of being you know, mindful and, and having awareness and being present, the whole time I'm reading your book, I'm thinking of a line that a college professor used to say all the time to me, which was, wherever you are, be there. It's convicting, honestly. <laughs> and so it was great to read examples of that in the book where you're talking about – like for example, you're rocking your son on the porch and there's a sunrise or no, sunset or no, the clouds. Anyway, yeah. could have been any of those things really. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an Ansel Adams picture and you forego you know, going in and grabbing your phone and taking a shot for Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff because you want to fully experience the moment. It, while I was reading that, I, I thought of this question which is do you take notes in those kind of moments like, oh, this is a moment I want to write about later? I used to. I used to live, you know, as a writer, you're sort of like you feel captive to the muse. And I used to live like a prisoner to inspiration, which means that when I was inspired, everything else would stop and I would sit down and I would write until I had the idea on paper. And I thought the only way for me to be creative is when I feel inspired, I need to write and I need to be seeking out those opportunities to get inspired and then capture them. Um, and I didn't really have much of a disciplined view of creativity. I just thought it comes to me and I write and it flows and it's good. Uh, but as I went back and would read that stuff that, that I wrote during those moments of inspiration where you feel like it is the most groundbreaking, earth-shattering revelation the world has ever heard. And you go back and you read it you know, a few days or weeks later and you go, huh, well, that's not that good. I mean it's okay, but it needs a little bit of work. And uh, I really, after having this letdown again and again, I realized, what if, what if creativity is more about showing up than being a genius on the spot? And so I, I saw this wonderful TED Talk, probably the best TED Talk there is, in my opinion, by Elizabeth Gilbert, where mm-hmm. she talks about this idea of when creativity comes. And she ba- just basically tells story after story about how, yes, something mystical does happen when we get inspired, and, and that's good. But those things often happen at inopportune times. And uh, she told the story of, I think, like uh, Leonard Cohen or somebody, I can't remember, a musician where he's driving in the car and he gets this wonderful melody in his mind. And he, has, he, has no, he can't write it down. He doesn't have a recorder. He's stuck in the car. You know? And we all have those moments in the shower or going for a run or wherever, you know, these inopportune moments where we get inspired. And I used to stop everything and try to write those things down. And in fact, I I had a moment like this this morning when I was going for a walk with my son. I didn't have my phone or anything. And in the story, this person says, uh, you know, looks up at the sky at God or the muse or that mysterious force that inspires you and says, can't you see I'm driving here? (laughs) And, And, and just, you know, continues on. And Elizabeth talks about how it's a discipline to believe that if the idea is good enough, it will come back to you again. And I don't know if this is reckless or whatever, but I don't want to live like a crazy person who's like, you know, always waiting for the wind to blow the right way to get the words to say. And so that's sort of like a, a prayer or a meditation that I have where I go, if this idea is good enough, if it's not for me, you know, if the world needs to hear it, then it needs to come around when I've got a pen and paper. 
Otherwise, I'm just going to assume that it's it's for somebody else. And um, you know, it was, since I've started doing that, I don't feel like I've lost any great ideas. And the ones that come to me at inopportune times come back to me. Like that idea when I was going for a walk, I was like, oh, I, got, I can't forget this. I, I, should, I should have had something to write it down. But that would have distracted me from where I was in the moment. And if I'm constantly carrying a pen or an iPhone app around with me everywhere trying to capture everything, then I'm missing being there. And I think in some ways I'll miss that inspiration. And so as luck would have it, I come back home and I start working on some stuff, and I go, "Oh yeah, there was that 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 idea," and I started writing it, and and I and I captured it later. That's great. I, I yeah, I wondered about that because I've been a person who you know ever since like junior high or high school, I've had this little. It's like the college rule, not the college rule. The little the little notebook, like it's black with like white specks all over it, but it's like miniature. It's like the size of an iPhone, and so I'd have one of those in my pocket and a pen, and I'd say, oh, I just had an idea, and I'd write down, you know, three words. And so hope to remember that later. Would you ever allow that to happen where you're like, oh, yeah, that's a memory. You know what? I probably could write on that later. I'll just write down such and such memory and then maybe go back to that later and see if that was, you know, to have like a bank of stuff maybe. Yeah, and I'm not anti-note-taking. I totally love doing that. I just, you know, when there are those moments where I can't get it down or where, uh, writing it down would actually pull me out of the experience. I'm mm-hmm. trying to be more disciplined about being present. But I, I have notebooks full of ideas. Uh, and I like what my friend Marion Roach Smith wrote a great book about how to tell your story. Um, it's a book called the, the Memoir Project, which I read several times preparing for this book. Um, she says, just write down a trigger, a detail, something that's going to trigger that memory for, for you. So maybe it's the yellow shirt that your wife wore that she spilled ketchup on when you guys went out for hot dogs or something, and it's going to trigger this memory and this feeling and this whole other thing. You don't have to sit and write on it for you know, a, you know, a bunch of time, but just capture a detail that will trigger that for you uh, just you know, in, in a few words. And I like, I like doing that. And I certainly do allow you know those opportunities to come. I think a great time where I'm still and I've I've got a laptop in front of me and I can just I can just write is when I'm traveling, when I'm on the plane. I mean that is a great time where nobody can call you, where you're not checking email, you know, unless there's you know Wi-Fi on, on the flight, where you're just you're present to your own ideas and creativity. And I really try to maximize those times. As I've you know tried to do this more and more professionally, I've also not hated you know I've, I've tried to embrace those less than spectacular moments where i get up and i sit down at my desk and the creativity and inspiration isn't there and i write anyway and, and i find the act of showing up uh will will sometimes kickstart the creativity but it's okay for it to feel like work some days and and that's part of the process too I know that uh, David Allen calls, you know, sitting down and dumping everything out of your head a mental sweep and Chris Licurto calls it a brain dump. Both of them kind of say, you know, if you do that first thing in the morning and you just get your your stuff out in out of your head, then you can kind of sift through it and see, you know, and then you've, your brain's an empty box. So then you can actually focus on, you know, the tasks at hand or the experiences that you should be doing. Does that kind of feel like when you just say, OK, it's 5 a.m. and I'm going to sit down and write – does your head feel clearer after you've done that? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's a great thing to begin your day doing the thing that you love the most. It sort of sets a mood for the rest of the day. And you can – it's like, you know, going for a run in the morning or, or, you know, working out or something. You can live off of that adrenaline high for the whole day. 
you know, so even if this isn't your full-time deal, you know, you can go into work and go, man, I did, I did that this morning and I feel great. Yeah, I think my head's clear and I feel like if I just spend all day managing interruptions and distractions with, you know, social media and email and all that stuff, some days I, I am prone to that or I'm just reacting. If I start the day creating long before I ever start reacting, I, I feel like I've done something productive. And when I just, you know, endlessly react to things, sometimes I feel empty. I feel like, man, I, I haven't created anything new. I haven't put anything into the world that wasn't there before. I've just been responding to things. I just feel better about what I've done and, and, and the contribution that I've made. Speaking of work that you love to do, I love that you talk about calling in the book. Specifically, you, you quote Stephen Pressfield saying that the, in the pursuit of our life's work, we often chase shadow careers. And you talk about, you know, that basically you, you know, thought, hey, I'm going to be the next Jimi Hendrix. And yeah. and that's not who you are. You're, you're a writer. But that's not to say you don't have any less passion for music per se. It's just that writing was always the trajectory that your life was supposed to be aiming towards. And you kind of line that out and kind of basically lay out Look, I switched tracks, and I should have seen the signs earlier. But you wouldn't have seen them because you know you were living in that moment. You were in the in between, and so that's one of those things where it's like just people don't realize that, in a sense, spending time. I mean, it's not. In, sometimes it's not intentional, but sometimes it can be intentional. Where we say, okay, well, I'm doing this one passion when all the time they really should be working on the other one. It's, it's a form of procrastination in a sense. Yeah, and, and it's also to say that sometimes the time that you spend working on, on something that, that doesn't end up being your career or your vocation or your life's work isn't time wasted. It's time preparing. You see this with writers a lot. You know, Pressfield talks about this, your past experience. Even if you weren't writing, the experiences – that you write from in many ways uh, in, inspire your your art that if you were to just jump into writing at age 21, you wouldn't have been able to do that. And I think that's certainly true for Pressfield. I think that's true for other people like um, Stephen King, Anne Lamott, these writers that, that I really look up to. You know, there was this season of struggle and even of failure where they were not doing what they were, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. And yet, as you get down the line, once they found their calling and they look back and they go, oh, that, that wasn't an accident. And in my case, I'd spent all this time preparing to be you know, the world's best guitar player. And then when it was time to not change tracks, but in a sense, pivot my purpose, mm. yes. um, I was able to apply the, the lessons that I learned about discipline from my dad and creativity from, from you know, spending a year on the road. And, and all of these different things that I'd learned from pursuing one creative vocation to another, and I realized, wow, all of this was preparation for my life's work. And it was important that I acknowledged it at that point, and I did, I did kind of delay calling myself a writer, and I probably could have done it sooner. But I looked back on those you know, 10 years of playing guitar, and I realized this wasn't time wasted. This was time preparing for the something to come. I mean, it brings to mind that part in... Uh Quitter, where John Acuff talks about that finding your passion isn't necessarily a, a search so much as it's kind of a recovery when you, you finally look back and realize, oh, that's what it was. But then – and I love that you're, you're kind of giving a, a redemption to the 
and, and saying it's definitely not procrastination, that it's, it's seeking your passion and, and working on your passion. The whole time you were working on music was not a waste of time because you had all of that now to write about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I think all you all we can do is pursue the thing that is on our heart right now, the thing that we think we're supposed to do, and that's what I was doing. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, procrastinating. I wasn't putting off something that I knew I was supposed to be doing. And so what I'm not saying is you could just sort of do whatever, and that's preparation. I was doing the thing that I thought I was supposed to be doing as well as I could have done it. And then as I pursued that, and this is true for a lot of people in history who find their their life's work, you know, who become a master of a certain craft. I've read about it, you know, about uh, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, a number of people, they're pursuing a vocation and they're doing it really, really well. And as they're pursuing that, as they're waiting for this thing to take off, they receive another epiphany, another revelation, and they go, oh, like, this isn't exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And if you didn't pursue that first pursuit with your whole heart, uh, I don't think you ever would have found the, the thing that, you know, ended up being the thing. Mm, yeah, because essentially you have to practice no matter what it is that you're practicing towards. If you don't practice now on this thing, you won't do it when the, the real thing comes along. Yeah, you have to learn how to practice. Oh, yeah. That's great. You also talk a bit about what some would call boredom in the book a bit. In other words, most of life does not necessarily feel like an adventure and it can actually feel more like boredom. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, hearing that, just it made me think of my almost nine-year-old daughter. And <laughs> she says often, I'm bored. Mm-hmm. And I think a, le- a week ago or so, I saw a tweet online from Anne Marie Miller who said, we should never have a reason to be bored. And I said, but being bored isn't always bad because that's what I always tell my daughter. And so we started talking a little bit about it and she said – that uh, culturally, the, the the word boredom or being bored was pretty recent. Like it was within the last century or so. And that made me think to look it up. And so I looked it up and I was like – I looked up the word boredom on Wikipedia. So, And it said that the first usage of that word was in the novel Bleak House by Charles Dickens in about 1850. I'm not saying that uh, you know, like most people would say, well, social media and and TV and all this. I mean, people have been bored or been living in the tension between you know now and where they want to be their whole lives. You know, the whole time. I mean, we can go back to you know biblical times if we had to to point to other places like that. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I like what my friend Gary says to his kids when they say, "I'm bored." He says, "If you're bored, you're boring," meaning. <laughs> It's up to you to find an interesting life to live. It's up to you to make the most of this experience. The problem is that we, um, in an entertainment-driven culture, I think the reason that the word bored didn't exist before 18-whatever is because uh, you got up, you worked real hard, you ate, and you went to bed. And that was your life, and you were never bored uh, because there was always something to do. And now with technology and, uh, you know, the really, you know, the, the industrial age where everybody didn't have to make or repair everything by hand. I mean, I just, you know, dropped off some shirts at the dry cleaners today that had some stains on them. And if I didn't have that, I would be, you know, sitting outside in this, you know, with this tub and a washboard, you know, scrubbing those shirts. 
but I, I don't have to do that. And, and I have time to, you know, go out to lunch with my wife or, or whatever. And so I think that we have more opportunities to be bored. But what that also means is we have more opportunities to do exciting things. The problem is sometimes life doesn't feel like an adventure, but that doesn't mean that it can't be adventurous in, in some respect. But uh, like you, Eric, I don't think there's anything wrong with stillness and and just enjoying where you are right now. Um, I like C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of love where, you know, this is something that we say a lot in our culture. Uh, I, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. You know, this whole we're in love with the idea of being in love and anybody who's been married for, you know, more than three minutes knows that that feeling of being in love, uh, I think for most people, wears off or evolves. And uh, I, I kind of get annoyed when people say, I'm still in love with my wife or still in love with my husband. Um, not that I think that's a bad thing, but but I think that uh, in some cases they're they're lying. <laughs> they're, they're creating this, this artificial... Uh, extension of this feeling that wasn't meant to last forever. And Lewis talks about that where he says, um, you know, there's a difference between loving someone and being in love. And love is this long-term commitment. And when you make that commitment, uh, feelings follow. But being in love is really having those feelings that lead to that commitment. The reason that you have those feelings is so that you would commit to that person or that thing that you love or want to give your life to. And it's stands to reason that if the purpose of being in love is to lead to this deeper sense of loving someone, that it's okay for that stuff to go away. And he says, who wants to feel those butterflies in the stomach? Who wants to feel that uneasiness of being in love for the rest of your life? It, it is supposed to go away because it's replaced with what he calls a quieter love. And to take things you know, maybe a, a st- an inappropriate step further, when I used to go on, on dates with girls – uh, even my wife, I would get so nervous that I would have gas <laughs> the, the whole time. And I'm glad that uh, uh, you know I'm not farting all the time and and trying to to cover it up. Uh, I I you know I still fart in front of my wife, but it's a whole different kind of conversation. Not because I'm nervous. Hopefully, um, it's a quieter it's fart. A qui- it's a quieter <laughs> fart. But, you know, there's something about this person gets me. And, yeah, you still want it to be romantic and you have to work towards that. And I'm not saying that that's not, you know, that that you should just, you know, that marriage is boring or anything. But I think it's a good picture of life, which is to say that sometimes the exciting feelings go away. And that is actually a necessary death to lead to a longer term, more fulfilled commitment. Excellently put. So – I have to ask this. Where are you now? Like are you still in the in-between? Are you going to be in the in-between with other areas in your life in the future? I think we are always in the in-between. I mean that's why I wrote the book um, because I kept waiting to be finished, to be done, to arrive. And even now while I'm uh, writing full-time and uh, achieving – success in some small ways and and some people would say big ways doing some things that i never imagined i would do or that would take decades to do i'm doing those things now and i still feel this dissatisfaction this undoneness that i i need to top the last thing that i did i need to keep striving keep pushing and as i said before there's something healthy to that that keeps you know that keeps you moving that that allows you to not grow complacent i embrace that but it's caused me to realize if I'm not happy now 
or, or, or rather, if, if I'm not completely 100% fulfilled and content, then what makes me think I will be ever? And so maybe I need to stop gauging my happiness by what I've accomplished and more by how satisfied I can feel with where I am right now, wherever that may be. And so I don't think I'll ever be finished. I don't think I'll ever be done until I'm dead. Leonardo da Vinci once said that art is never finished. It's only abandoned. It's one of my favorite quotes. And I see it as my responsibility not to finish the art that I'm called to create, but to just not abandon it. That's great. I know that you're even currently doing a series that you just started on your blog called the Slowdown Challenge. And I love this because as I wrote in one of the comments on the blog was I've intentionally been taking walks with not necessarily the ulterior motive for exercise but – and and to leave the iPod so they don't have any music. I don't have any podcasts, which is hard. But to just experience the experience that you're in as you take the walk. Yeah. Yeah. I think for folks who do what we do and are immersed in tweets and Facebook updates and text messages, it is a discipline to step away from it. But I don't know what your experience has has been with it, Eric, but I welcome it. I welcome just like not having to be tethered to my technology for 20 minutes. It's a a great respite. It rejuvenates me and refreshes me so that I can go back and actually give something to the people that are, are wanting something from me. It's it's like taking very deep breaths and in just enjoying that, getting the oxygen to flow to your brain. Absolutely, the best kind of you know example I can give as to what it feels like for my my attention. Mm-hmm. So, well, Jeff, it's been awesome to talk with you again. You know, when is the next Tribe Writers coming up? I want to make sure people check that out if they haven't before. You know, we don't have any sort of set dates. We just we go through a, a class at a time. The classes take about eight weeks. We're over halfway through our current class. So what is it, August? I would say probably beginning of October we'll do okay. another um, you know, registration, uh, sign, you know, call for sign-ups. And people and, can always sign up to get notified by yeah. the email. And, and usually you've got a one free lesson out there, which is usually a good shoehorn into it. Yep, yeah, you can go to trybetters.com right now and join the waiting list. You'll get a, a free few lessons in the meantime, get a feel for – uh, you know what it is, and and then you can decide ahead of time if if you think it's for you, and then uh, we'll notify you when it's time to sign up. Awesome, and obviously people need to go grab the in between. It's well worth the read. Thanks so much for coming, and it's been great to talk with you. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It's always fun. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Jeff for coming by and talking about the in-between. I hope you can see how having a productivity show about just the nuts and bolts of productivity can get a bit boring. And so it's much better to branch out and talk about applying productivity to these other areas of our lives. I hope you pick up a copy of The In-Between and start to practice some of the learning to live in the tension between where you are now and the next big thing. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us some feedback at beyondthetodolist.com slash iTunes, and we will see you next episode.
Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Find more great podcasts like How to Podcast, Clean Comedy, Once Upon a Time, Christian Worldview, and more at noodle.mx. Think, laugh, and succeed by subscribing to our podcasts at noodle.mx.